Have you tried to start meditating daily but can't seem to stick with it? I had that same problem too for a long time, which is why I've created a new guide called The Top 5 Reasons You Can't Seem to Stick with a Meditation Practice and How to Actually Build One That Lasts. Just head over to our website at oneyoufeed.net and you can get free access to this helpful resource. Again, that's a free guide called The Top 5 Reasons You Can't Seem to Stick with a Meditation Practice at oneyoufeed.net. Not drinking is not a replacement for drinking. It's just not enough because it's just taking away the anesthetic. You're left with the wreckage and the wounds. You're left with yourself. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction. How they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Laura McCowan, a writer of books and an award-winning blog and host of Spiritualish, a show that provides an irreverent take on self-help. She's been featured in WebMD, New York Post, Bravo, The Today Show, and more. Laura also hosts sold-out retreats and courses teaching people to say yes to a bigger life. Her newest book is We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. It's a pleasure to have you on. You wrote a wonderful memoir called We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But before we do, we'll start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandmother who's talking with her granddaughter, and she says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and thinks about it for a second. She looks up at her grandmother. She says, well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. I have two answers. One was uh, I just recently rewatched Harry Potter with my daughter, all the Harry Potter movies. Yes. And they have a moment. I don't know if you caught this in either the books or the movies, but they have a moment where basically where... Dumbledore relays this lesson to Potter about the good and the bad, and it depends on which one you feed. So I loved that that happened. It literally came on last night when we were watching that one. And I was like, "Ah, this is good for the show. Awesome. Because she caught on to that, you know, that that lesson. Yeah. uh, Or that idea. She thought about that um, and asked about it. So there's that. Um, But to me in my work, you know, I had this idea, I think that a lot of people do, until we are faced with something that uh, tests that idea within ourselves. 
that there are good people, bad people, or that things are pretty kind of black and white, you know, when it comes to addiction, which is what my book is about, and really what my work is about. I, like most people thought that people who get addicted, uh, lack willpower, they lack grit, Mm -hmm. they're weak, right? On some level, or they're bad, you know, yeah, yeah, they're just bad inside. And that that would never happen to me, someone like me. <laughs> and what I learned in <laughs> going through addiction myself was obviously that, that that was not true. And it really had nothing to do with willpower. And it didn't matter how good I was, uh, or how bad I was or anything. And um, I have a chapter in my book called, We Are All Magnificent Monsters. And it's basically about that. It's like, yeah. Look, we are all capable of everything, every piece of light, and and we have it all in us, all the light and every bit of the dark. Essentially, I don't go around wondering if people are good or bad anymore. I just, I know that they are both. And to me, that parable is not just the fact that we have all that in in us, but that if we can find that in ourselves, we can find it to be true in other people. And um, there's a lot of compassion that can be found there. Yeah. Right. Because we become a lot less judgmental of people's badness as we, as we would label it. That's sort of what I draw from that. And I didn't get into the book. It just didn't work. But if there's a quote that says, believing you are all good is like believing in the half moon. So it's the same thing, you know, it's like, we're all made of everything. Uh, and it doesn't matter what you feed. Yeah, it matters what you feed. Right. Yeah, I love that idea. And I, t- I tend to agree. Often religions get into debates. Buddhism says you're all good. Christianity says you're all bad. And I'm like, well, what point you start from? And I just sort of think, well, it's all in there, right? It's, it's all, in there. all in there. And so, mm-hmm. and then it just depends what life experiences we have, what's, you know, everything that we have that happens. Yeah. Where I want to start from here is uh, a slightly less usual place than I normally would. Okay. But I want to talk about this because I think it's great for this time. In your book, you're saying every big transition in your life, pregnancy, becoming a mother, marriage, divorce, and especially getting sober, you've been gobsmacked by the messiness and difficulty of it all. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to say there's a term for these phases of life in biblical and psychological terms, liminal space. Yeah. Limin is a Latin word that means threshold. It's the time between what was and the next, a place of transition, waiting and not knowing. And goodness gracious, are we in one right now? Yes, we are. And so it, it sort of stood out to me as very topical for where we are. So let's talk about living in this liminal space. How do we do it so that what we come out with is positive? Yeah. You know, I hadn't thought of us living in a liminal space right now, but we most certainly are. Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr, yes. <laughs> Who I adore. I really admire his work. And he says we, we should seek liminal spaces whenever we can. We should embrace them and desire them and invite ourselves into them whenever we can. And I believe that's because that's where transformation really takes place. When we're going along and the ground is pretty steady, we don't grow much. We don't change much unless we, you know, force it on ourselves. Mm-hmm. For me, it was many things, but um, getting sober, becoming a mother, the things I just said, like anytime when change is forced on you, like it is right now for everybody, literally in the world, right. how you look at that time is so important. Like, I think the primary thing is not looking at it like a mistake or something that you want to rush through but something that you can say, what is this trying to teach me, right? What is this trying to teach me? And to assume that there is something to be taught in that time. And that doesn't mean you slap on positivity and say it's all good because it's not. It's extraordinarily uncomfortable, extraordinarily uncomfortable. But I think that's, what is that quote? Great change is always preceded by chaos. If you think of it as something is completely busted, like you have a vase that is, it fell on the floor and it's completely busted, Um, before we put, if we decide to put that vase back together in some kind of other shape or make a mosaic out of it or whatever you might do, when it's just lying on there on the floor, it's in this liminal space. We don't know what it is yet. And we don't know what we're going to become in this next phase. We don't know how we're going to come out of it. So I don't know how to say let's come through it with positivity in a positive way, but I do know that how we feel about it and how we look at it and the perspective that we have about this time 
is not being a mistake and not rushing to get to the next part is sort of where the magic is. It's like, oh, this is reality. This is what's happening right now. And I am in the in-between. I don't have the answers. And sort of embracing that mystery because who knows, right? When I've tried to force myself out of that type of state, um, first of all, it doesn't really work. (laughs) That's not on our timeline. But whenever I've tried to impose some order uh, or impose my will on the forces of change in a liminal space, it doesn't really work. And oftentimes I miss the blessings of that time. Yep. I think that's right on. It's embracing it to the extent we can. And I'm always sensitive to talking about deep suffering things that are happening to certain people in the world as like turning them into like a growth opportunity for me. Yeah, totally. The reality is when we are forced into difficult circumstances, and we all are varying degrees of difficulty, we have the opportunity to grow and change. Doesn't mean we will, but we have the opportunity. And when I read your book, that just jumped out to me. Liminal space. I was like, yes. Liminal space. And just the acknowledgement, the first time I heard it, just even acknowledging that, that that's a thing. Yeah. It's been philosophically true and, and spiritually true in the beginning of time. There's some rest in that. Like, oh, there's a beginning, a middle, and the end to everything. There's a beginning, a middle, and the end. So this is the middle part. So your book starts off pretty early on with this line, and it hooked me immediately. You said, on July 13th, 2013, the night of my brother's wedding, I left my four-year-old daughter alone in a hotel room overnight because I was blackout drunk. And the reason that that grabbed me, beside the fact that it's a completely compelling statement, is that I got sober this most recent time for me, which has been about 12 years ago, because I passed out and left my son alone. Now that. he was home with my my partner at the time. Yeah. So he wasn't alone alone. Yeah. She got him up, she got him to school, but the point is that like I just dropped the ball. And like you, I had thought, yes, I've got some problems, but I'm not going to miss the boat. That's never going to happen. That won't happen. And it did. Mm-hmm. And that was what brought me back to recovery again. And I had one short relapse after that, but I've been sober since. I got sober young from heroin, stayed sober about eight years, drank again for about four years and have been sober since. But that was the event that for me too, that it was just like, wow, okay, something's got to change, you know? And I know for you that that really sort of woke you up and then it took you about a year to get all the way sober from there. But yeah, like you, I just really resonated with that because the horror of it for me was even though I could say, well, she was home with him. It, I was supposed to be there to wake him up. Yeah. I was supposed to be there. For me, it was the most horrific thing that could happen to me, you know? Like you said, I thought, although there was plenty of evidence, plenty of evidence to the contrary, I thought, even when I was really drunk, you know, it wouldn't supplant my instinct, my mom instinct, that I would always make my way back to her. And I didn't. And, you know, the reason I started the book that way was because I wrote this book for anybody who wants to, you know, is, is struggling against something within themselves of any kind. But I wrote it especially for mothers, because there is such a special vitriol and shame for mothers. And I assume fathers too. I can only speak to mothers who drink or use. And I wanted to invite them in and say like, this is where we're going. I've got you, you know, Um, because I don't feel shame about that anymore, which is the miracle of it all. And obviously there was a lot of work involved, but yeah, it goes against everything natural. Right. But you say elsewhere in the book, if there's one thing you can count on, it's that addiction will always demand more, more attention, more loyalty, more time, more everything. It will demand everything, everything, you know, and it's a phrase that, you know, we hear in recovery, which is like, I didn't do that yet. Right. I know for me in my addiction, it was all a matter of time. There was no horrific thing that I wouldn't have been willing to do at some point to get higher drunk. That's and right. It just I just didn't have to. You just weren't you know? there yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, you hadn't had the time or the or the circumstances or whatever. Right. Yeah. More. <laughs> it took everything. Another thing that really struck me, and you gave this description, and it's so good because I often talk about I think the worst place in the world to be 
is stuck between really, really wanting to drink and really knowing that you shouldn't. Oh. Like to me, that is a as a special kind of hell. And yeah. I stay sober a lot of times because I simply never want to be there. But you describe it as wily coyote, <laughs> that moment when the earthquake hits and the ground splits in two, and the poor coyote is grasping all wide-eyed and panicked at both sides of the earth. The divide becomes bigger, 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 and his body starts stretching like a rubber band till he's unable to keep any grip. Mm-hmm. I love it. That is so, you know, you call it this purgatory, this unbearable wishing for one side or the other, this unsustainable stretching. It's just a nightmare. It is the nightmare. Yep. The nightmare. That year plus between when that incident happened with my daughter and when I finally got sober was honestly the worst year of my life. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want to get sober. You know, I really didn't. I mean, let's just say that I just didn't. Yeah. I thought it was the end of everything. And yet I knew I couldn't keep going as I was. And I tried desperately to call it like the third door. Yes. There has to be another option, you know, and that's what I spent purgatory looking for was that option. And I, and you know, it's funny. The, the crazy thing is I knew it didn't exist, but I just couldn't accept that it was over yet. I just couldn't accept that all that was over. I didn't know how to do that life. So, yeah, I mean, in, in psychological terms, I think it was young, maybe Freud, who knows, that said a split mind is hell. Mm. Like a split, a split mind is hell. Yes. I think a really good analogy is like if we hear conflict in, like say other people having a conflict, say you have kids and they fight, it jacks your nervous system up. It's like freaks you out, you know, or even if you're strangers fighting, it immediately causes such internal friction in you and your heart rate goes up, you know, feels terrible. But that purgatory is like the one foot in one foot out is like that friction inside of you. And we withstand so much of that when we are caught in addiction, we withstand it every day, even not just related to the drinking, but the lying, the presentation of two different versions of ourselves, saying one thing and doing the other thing, the cognitive dissonance of who we think we are. And yet what we're doing just doesn't match up. And that causes, that's an extraordinarily hellish, painful place. Certainly is. I agree with you. I don't know that I could get sober again. I don't know that I would come out on the side of sobriety. So I just can't, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) because of that, no matter how shitty sobriety you might get. I'm the same way. I literally think back that feeling. I think back to that feeling and that's what I go. I can't. And I know that if I go drink, I will, I will be forced to that juncture again. (laughs) You know, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like it's going to go well. Um, and so, you know, I'll be forced, forced back to that juncture. Other thing you talk about that I think is really important is you say, uh, without the drinking life should have become easier. Everybody thinks it will be easier. And I think it's really important to be able to say that not right away. Sometimes, you know, that sometimes it feels worse for a little bit. You know, I always say that being sober is amazing. Getting sober sucks. You know, (laughs) and and so but it's important to realize because I think that's what confuses a lot of people confused me. Mm. Well, I quit. Why isn't everything better? I feel feel terrible. Why? This doesn't seem worth it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, And, and I think if we don't have somebody saying to us, well, hold on a second. What you're experiencing right now is not what you'll be experiencing later. You got to get through this. It took me a while, for whatever reason, coming in and out of recovery a couple of times before I got that message clearly enough. Like, oh, I see. I need to hang on here. You need to hang on. Well, there's so much to that, right? There's so much to why that's true. Mm-hmm. Because the drinking was never the thing, right? The, the drinking actually served a purpose. I say, like, not drinking is not a replacement for drinking. It's just not enough. Yes. Because it's just taking away the anesthetic. And then you're left, you're left with yourself. Yes. You're left with the wound. You're left with the wreckage and the wounds. And like, by the time I got sober and this kept me drinking for so long as I was afraid of what I was going to have to look at, you know, mm-hmm. my wrecked marriage, I felt like a shitty person just all the time. And I didn't know how to feel things. You know, the reasons why we end up drinking start so early. It's just like this accumulation of 
limiting beliefs and bad conditioning and bad patterns. And then of course, when we get sober, we're left with ourselves. One of the first guys I talked to, one of the only two sober people I knew when I was trying to get sober, he had like 20 years of sobriety at that point. You know, what you want to know so desperately is like, does it get better? And that's what I would ask sober people. Like, do you like your life now? Because I just didn't believe they could. And I said, like, is it better? Are you better now? You know, 20 years sober. And he just like had the best laugh. He's like, oh, honey, (laughs) he's like, it gets better because you're not creating all this wreckage anymore. Like that does feel better. It gets better and then it gets worse and then it just gets different. That's a pretty good description. Yeah. Although I will unequivocally still stand on the, yes, it's better. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The different is not a bad different. I mean, unequivocally, it's better. Almost not even a comparison. It's like an apple and an orange. Like, well, right. You know, the sort of the crux of my entire book was like everything I thought I wanted and everything I thought that made life worth living and everything that I thought I was so wrong. Um, But it took time. Like I hated sobriety for a good year. Hated it because I wanted to drink all the time. Yeah. Yep. And it, and that's really painful. Yeah. That obsession didn't leave me for a long time. I was pissed off. I was sad. I was in so much yeah. grief. And yet there were bursts of such extraordinary joy and hope and love and all of that in there. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, it, it's unequivocally better, but it's it's not easy. No. It doesn't mean life is easy, right? Now I had two very different getting sobers. I mean, when I got sober at 24, it was from heroin addiction and it was a low bottom. I was homeless. I was looking at going to jail for a long time. I weighed a hundred pounds. I had hepatitis C. I mean, I was in bad shape. And I went in and I got into treatment and I stayed in treatment and then I went to a halfway house. I wouldn't say that it felt easy because it was not easy, but life was less complicated probably, right? Life was way less complicated and it was so bad that it was like, oh my God. And I was supported and I was carried. And the second time I had just gotten the best job I'd ever had. I had, you know, a family. I lived in the suburbs and I drove a nice car. And you had a lot more to lose. And nothing bad had happened. I mean, okay, yes, I didn't go home to take care of my son that one night. But compared to my earlier one, which was such a such a bad thing, I was like, what? This isn't so bad. I I had enough wisdom to know that inside I was just the same. Yeah. You know, right. but it was harder. And like you, the the desire to drink didn't leave. It just it dogged me for like six months. I was like, "Is this?" You know, first time it felt like it went away kind of quickly. The second time, I was like, "Oh my god!" It just you know, and it was a little bit more of an intellectual exercise because I hadn't fully had my ass kicked. Yeah, I'd had it pretty well kicked, but it was still enough. I found my way through it. You feel like that's because alcohol is just everywhere. It's so there, it's so socially acceptable. It's so totally benign to most people. Whereas heroin, obviously everyone's like, of course, <laughs> no one does heroin. Like, now that's what I mean. Inside, I was exactly the same person. Yeah. I was out of control and desperate. It's just that alcohol, I could walk down to the store and for $10, buy a pint of whiskey. For heroin, I had to have all this money and I kept having to spend more. And where am I going to get $300 today? And I've got to start stealing it and I've got to engage with a different group of people that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, the mechanism of addiction in me was the same both times. Yeah. And so I luckily had had enough time in sobriety. You know, I'd have been sober about eight years that I could see that. You know, I I could think back and 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 I'd learned enough in that time that I was able to see, okay, this is the same thing. It's just that the consequences aren't here yet. And they may not be here in the same way for a long time. But the question I kept asking myself was like, do I really need to keep riding this elevator down? Like, do I need to get in a car accident with my son before this is enough? And I just kept going, no, I don't have to do that. No, I don't have to do that. Yeah. And and uh, that's a different game. It is a little bit of a different game, but I was fortunate to have support so and and help. I could go on and on about how fascinated I am by alcohol and that we basically think it's a benign or celebrated drug. <laughs> but you know, that's that's a whole different conversation. But I think that you don't have to explain also not using heroin. <laughs> no. You know, people wonder when you don't drink, it's like a conversation. They wonder. Yeah. yeah. There's, you know, because it's a thing. Yep. 
It's not a thing to not do heroin. There is a product that I have used literally almost every day for years, and it's called Grammarly. Grammarly is a digital writing tool that you can always rely on to get your message across clearly and effectively. There's a lot more to writing well than just catching spelling mistakes. Grammarly can help you write confidently no matter where you are. It has helped me so many times catch subtle mistakes, and it also suggests improvements that make my writing cleaner and clearer. It works where you work, in Gmail, Google Docs, and Slack, among many others. The ability to communicate well is the X factor in all areas of life. Work and relationships depend upon our ability to get our message across clearly and effectively. Grammarly helps more than 20 million people put their best words forward. Signing up for a Grammarly account is free, and it gives you real-time spelling and grammar checks as you write. And if you want deeper insights on your writing, Grammarly Premium gives you advanced feedback on tone, word choice, punctuation, and more. It's an incredibly powerful tool to help you improve your ability to communicate. Again, it's hard for me to state the value this tool has provided me nearly every day for over five years. You can get 20% off Grammarly Premium when you sign up at Grammarly.com feed. That's 20% off Grammarly Premium at Grammarly.com feed. That's spelled G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash feed. Many of you probably have some type of pain that has prevented you from relaxing and sleeping or stopped you from exercising. Maybe it's been ongoing for a few weeks now and hasn't improved with any of the treatments you've tried. I get this tightness in my shoulders and neck from time to time that nothing seems to help. Enter Omax Health. If you're looking to get rid of nagging muscle and joint pain immediately while providing long-lasting recovery, then you need to try this natural breakthrough pain relief solution, CryoFreeze CBD Roll-On, developed by Omax Health. It's a non-prescription, triple-action pain relief that's specially formulated to block pain receptors, reduce inflammation, and improve muscle and joint flexibility. And the best part is it's a 100% natural CBD-powered remedy, and it works its magic within 10 minutes of application. And relief lasts up to 8 hours, much longer than the -the over-the-counter products. It really works like a charm on my neck muscles. I just roll it on, and I start to quickly feel a little bit better. It really helps relax those tight muscles and reduces the pain a lot. Omax Health is offering my listeners 20% off a full bottle of CryoFree CBD pain relief roll-on plus free shipping. This discount also applies towards any product site-wide. Just go to omaxhealth.com today and enter the code WOLF. That's O-M-A-X-Health.com and enter the code WOLF to get 20% off CryoFreeze and anything else site-wide. Similar to you, when I got sober the second time, I had a job that was a professional job. I was in sales for a software company, and my job was taking people out, entertaining them, going to conferences, you know? And so I'm just, I'm just waltzing into these drinking situations all the time. Yeah. My wife at the time continued to drink. It was a strange getting sober, but it, it worked, which thank God. Thank God. The elevator continuing to go down. I I guess my primary feeling, because I obviously didn't stop drinking after the most horrific thing happened, but I think that what scared me the most is that I just really didn't know what was going to happen when I drank anymore. I just, Mm -hmm. anything was on the table. I just didn't know. And so you said, you know, Emma, do I have to get in a car accident with my son? And it's like, that might be the best thing that was going to happen to you. (laughs) 
I agree. It was the, the same situation for me. Like when I start, I don't really know. Most times what happens is I do this, then I do this, then I do this. But then there's those other times I was a complete blackout drinker, you know, so like same. all the time. I often think back and I'm like, well, there's probably horror stories back there that I just fortunately don't recall, you know, <laughs> that I just yeah. don't, I just don't recall. Sometimes blackouts are a blessing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about another complicated topic. Okay. which is AA. It seems like maybe we've had a similar relationship to AA. Like I think AA saved my life twice mm -hmm. and it saved my life. I think that's all I can say about it. And right. yet I'm not really that big a part of it anymore. And there's lots of things with it that I have some, some challenge with, Yeah. but I love to be able to have a nuanced dialogue about AA because most of the dialogue that we hear out there is not nuanced. As you say so well, as in politics and religion, the beliefs on both extremes of AA are dangerous and limiting. Yeah. And I think it's really important. So I, I thought maybe we could just spend a couple minutes about what are some of the good things about AA that we love and what are some of the things that maybe we don't love as much. And then I'd love to hear some of your ideas on alternatives to AA. Sure. You know, I'm always really hesitant to say too much about getting sober without AA because that's what I did. You're right. Right. You and know, it, and, and so, it would be disingenuous to do that. I can say, well, I've heard good things about this and that this seems interesting, but I don't have firsthand experience with it. Yeah. So I'd love to just kind of talk a little bit about it. Sure. That was a chapter that I wrote many times, like at least 10 times. And I still wasn't sure if I wanted to include it because I just didn't. It's a delicate topic. And at the end of the day, my feeling is the same. The people in AA saved my life. Yep. Period. So my arguments are kind of, um, it's not even an argument. It's a luxury that I can have this conversation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I would say even since I wrote the book, I have different opinions now. So, which is mm -hmm. beautiful. It's like we get to change our mind and we get to grow. And, and that's the reality of people <laughs> and nature is right. Yeah. We just don't like to acknowledge that. Um, my arguments against AA were largely about the fellowship of AA. I didn't really grasp, and I don't think people largely do from the outside or even inside the program that there's the fellowship, which are the people. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of dysfunctional things that happen in the fellowship because it's people. But then there's the 12 steps, which is the program of recovery. Mm -hmm. right? that, that is the actual program. I think the program is beautiful, incredible. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't touch a thing. I think it's ancient spiritual wisdom. It's not even unique to the 12 steps. You can find that sort of process in other places. But the fellowship is where I struggled because I really had a hard time. I would often leave meetings feeling more depressed and not more hopeful because I felt like in, in some cases there was just this overwhelming sense of fear. Mm -hmm. This These things, you know, like my addict is in the parking lot doing push-ups and meetings are my medicine. And if I stay away from meetings, I'm going to you know, drink and die. Mm -hmm. And not just that, that's fine. But it was more telling other people they can't be sober and that they're not really sober if they aren't doing AA. That's mm -hmm. what I took a lot of issue with. Yep. No one has any right to tell anyone how to do their sobriety or their life or what constitutes being a healthy, sober person, right? So I didn't like that. There's that just this overall sense of that people who are 20, 25, 30 years sober were coming into meetings. I heard them say the same story every time they shared. And it was like, I don't know how this just feels like being stuck. It didn't feel expansive to me at, at certain points. I also felt like there's this over identification with being an alcoholic and that being the center of all your issues in life. And why you do everything you do. And I just, I rejected that so hard. It's like, no, you're a human being. That's why you're doing these things. I agree. That was one of the things that, that drove me crazy was this idea, this, this constant delineation between us alcoholics and normal people. Normie. And, oh, and I just too. went, no, I don't think so. Yes. There are some things that are specific to my alcoholism, but all humans struggle. All humans go through all this kind of stuff. And we're not so different and we're not so unique. I, I sort of related with that. And similar to what I think you're also saying, the thing I sort of got tired of hearing was 
you know, I'm still sick. Yes. You know, sober 10, 15 years, I'm still sick. I'm still a liar, a cheat. Uh, and I was like, well, I'm not the same person I was when I came in the door. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that my alcoholism is fixed. But the big book says we recover. Right. Yep. It does not say we are forever sick. It says yeah. we recover. Yep. That, but that's missed. There's a lot of misinformation that gets spread through the fellowship because people go to meetings and then they take what someone says in meetings and they pass that on and they pass that on and they pass yeah. that on and that becomes common knowledge and it's really not what the, was intended, you know, yeah. and it's not actually even in alignment with the program. So those were my arguments and the literature, there are parts of the literature that I was like, come on, can we please update this, it's, you know? Yes. Like the the for the wives chapter, and if your if your husband is, you know, just be gentle with him and let him do the things he needs to do, are ridiculous at this day and age. Yes. Okay. So those are my arguments. Some of my arguments in the beginning were like arguments against getting sober. They really were. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to get sober, and so AA is the problem, right? But some of them were legitimate and they were real, and I wasn't discerning enough to really just take what worked for me and leave the rest. I just wasn't there yet. So yep. that stuff got to me. Over time, however, there is such incredible community in AA. The fellowship is beautiful. I have met some of the most loving, wise, peaceful, serene people in the fellowship of AA. And if you have an alcohol problem, it is a place where you can bring that. Yep. I think the tenets, you know, service, being of service are huge. That's a massive part of my life and, and I think what sustains my sobriety and keeps me healthy. I never had an issue with the God thing. That was always very easy for me, but I know a lot of people do. And so that didn't bother me. I love, you know, the trust God, clean house, help others. I think mm. that's a pretty decent way to live. Yeah. You know, it's a good foundation for a life. And, um, and again, I think the 12 steps are beautiful. What I've noticed is that over time, and especially since this pandemic has started, almost immediately when it started, I kind of was like, oh, I need to go back to my AA roots. I need to be in meetings with other people that mm -hmm. are struggling. I, I want to be of service specifically to those people. And to, I want to sit and hear other people too. And, you know, so it's interesting that, that I found that to be my foundation, mm -hmm. the foundation of my recovery. And yeah, so those are my general thoughts. I mean, uh, I think it's okay for it to be complicated too. Yeah. Like, yep. I agree. I have very similar feelings. I mean, I think one of the things about AA, one of the best things about it is it's just ubiquitous. It's just yeah. everywhere and it's free, you know, and it's like pretty much anywhere you can find free places to go that you will get support and care and an opportunity and people who will understand you. And um, you've got a great line. Nothing is such a balm for a broken soul as this, to know you are not alone. And you'll get that in AA or 12-step program. You'll walk in and you'll hear people telling stories. You're like, oh my God, like, yeah, okay. Yeah, me I'm not too. the only one that was this way. So it's ubiquitous and it's everywhere. And I think that's amazing. Um, I agree with you. Some of the literature I think is outdated. It's just, you know, AA's got this, we're not going to change anything from what was 1939. It's, you know, <laughs> it's got a little of that, like it was written, you know, right out of God's mouth, you know, and I'm like, well, and I do have a little challenge with the God thing. Not so much that there's an, there's that element of it. And, and I thank God for the line. Thank God. That's something I don't believe in for the line as we understood him. Yeah. Cause I think that's probably saved millions of lives, but I still do think like the Lord's prayer, that is a severely Christian prayer. Like mm -hmm. I think there are places that, that we could not lose the heart of AA, but we could de-emphasize the Christian God piece of it mainly because it would open it up, I think to more people. Yeah. It's so interesting. But I think that you can come to AA, you know, like I just translated when they say this, what does that mean to me? When they say this, right. what does that mean to me? It just was like an additional step of processing that, that I sort of had to go through. And if you work with the right people in AA and you talk to the right people, which I have to acknowledge that experience varies wherever you are, right? Widely. So I got sober in Boston AA meetings, which was like extraordinary because there are so many, there are there's LGBT, you know, yes. meetings. There's literally every sort of 
faction, you could find your own meeting. That's not the case in a lot of places outside of big cities. So yeah. Yep. Agreed. That's a really good point. Women's meetings exist and men's meetings exist. That's about as far as it goes. Yeah. yeah. I love what you said there. You sort of summarized, you said it's a, it's for people who, who didn't catch it. It's an AA line that says, trust God, clean house, help others. Right. And clean house means clean up your inside messes, you know, take care of your, your internal things you feel bad about, the things that haunt you, the, you know, clean your life up. Resentments that you have and the, yeah. I think AA has resentments, right, too. Like, I'm almost six years sober. I will be this year. It's like, resentments are the sort of thing that makes me the most sick, you know? Mm-hmm. And that language, I think, is brilliant, you know, because it is about cleaning house. The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. I like the distinction you made in AA. There's a fellowship and there's a program of recovery. But I think what's really useful and what I often do is, particularly as I've drifted away from AA a second time. First time I drifted away from AA and I ended up drinking. Yeah. So moving away a second time, I'm like, well, hold on here. Like, do you not learn your lessons? You know, but but what's been helpful for me is to think about what is it that I got from AA that I think helped me to stay sober? And how else do I get that in my life? And I think community people to talk to that I can share with and that understand me, you know, recovery community, not friends and family, you know, right. And then some method for dealing with my internal things, some sort of spiritual life, some sort of connection to something bigger than me. Again, words can, can, can be different. And then opportunities to help others service, right? You know, AA is really great in that way. Cause it's sort of, it's just custom made. Yeah. You just keep going to meetings and new people keep coming in and you've got your opportunities. So outside of that, I've had to figure out like, okay, how do I patch those things together in my life? And when I sometimes talk with people who are thinking through their addiction, they're like, AA is not for me. I'm like, okay, well, here are some things I think you might want to make sure, like, how are you going to get these things? Because it's the combination of those factors that is what I think makes AA, when it works, work. Absolutely. I totally agree with all of that. And I think there are ways to deal with underlying causes and conditions and really mental health, right? Right. Um, I, I say I threw the book at it. I was like, I'm going to do AA. And I'm going to read all the books and I'm going to do therapy and I'm a yoga teacher. Yes. And because I, I'm just sort of nerdy and curious for, for one, but also I didn't find it all in AA, you know, yeah. AA, for, for example, AA doesn't address the body, the physical body. And to me, that's a massive, huge, yeah, massive part of, and I'm not, that's not a fault of AA. It's just not 
part of the program. Yeah, that's a fascinating point that I've often thought of. A lot of the times when I think, well, AA doesn't do that, and I think a little bit more about it, and I'm like, uh, I don't want it. <laughs> it probably shouldn't try that. Like, what do you want? A fitness program in AA? Do you exactly. want yoga? No. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But it, but even in the literature, it, it sort of doesn't address the body. And and again, it's not a criticism of AA, but that's a huge, that has been a massive part of my healing. What I've learned about trauma, what I've learned as a yoga teacher is that so much of our issues are in our body and have to be released somatically. And, and that required something else, you know, it's also therapy. Like I needed therapy. I needed more. And and that is encouraged in AA. There's a line, I think it's like one page 131 or 133 that says, you know, we encourage you to seek the help of professionals in all these other areas. And so I, I bring that up not to cite the big book, but because some of the misinformation you hear is people saying, ignore that in AA saying, ignore that. Don't go to that. This is all you need. And and that's what spreads and perpetuates this sort of dysfunctional side. Yeah, I agree. And what you were just saying, I often say, I use a similar phrase when I talk about dealing with my depression, which is I just throw the kitchen sink at it. Like I continue, it's just all, everything. Everything. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. Like if there's a way that's been suggested to work on it, I'm uh, yeah, I've probably given it a shot. <laughs> you know, like yeah, because it it requires that. You know, it's for me, it requires that, or I can slip into really bad states. Yeah, it's to use a buzzword. It's holistic, right? It's what it takes for me. Yeah, you know, and and that's what recovery took also. Right, agree. So I think I think that covers it all. You know, those are sort of the summary of of how I feel. But at the at the heart of that is so much gratitude and so much reverence for my life because it, I don't think I would be here if not for that foundation in A. So you and I are nearly out of time, but there's a couple small things that I'd like to talk about, although they're not small. Um, but I'm just going to read a line from the book and and ask you just to say a little bit more about it. You say, and you're talking about being lonely or alone. You say, we think it's the aloneness we fear, but I believe what we actually fear is not having a home within ourselves. I've been thinking so much during this time that this is like, we're all being forced into sobriety of, of, of sorts because we're just left with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, but I think um, it's causing a, a pretty large mental health crisis because we have created a world where we barely, we don't have to be with ourselves at all. If we don't want Mm -hmm. to, there are a million ways that we can escape. So just, you know, commentary on this time. But my first two thoughts when I went to get sober were what if I'm boring and who's going to love me? Mm -hmm. I was so afraid of that aloneness, even though I had been out, not really been in a lot of relationships. It was just the irony of that is that I was so much more alone. I didn't have a home in myself. I couldn't be trusted in my own house. <laughs> you know, I couldn't be trusted mm-hmm. in my mind and in my body. It was a scary place to be. It was a painful place to be. And when I went to get sober, I was just recently separated, like a year separated from my husband at the time. The loneliness of that was like crushing at first. It's like, I need someone in my life. I just need someone to come in and fix this. I need, and that's a narrative, you know, I have uncovered through a lot of work in sobriety is that I had this belief that someone else was going to come and save me. Mm -hmm. And that that was going to fix me. And man, did I do everything to try and make people do that for me. And that has been, that has been the real work of my sobriety. That has been the real crux of it. That was underneath the drinking was this medicating, this inability to be with myself, this fear of being by myself and this crushing fantasy, crushing because it's a fantasy and not real that someone was going to save me. And when that didn't happen and that didn't work and no one could ever do that. Oh my God, what a painful place that was. And it's ongoing forever. I, I'm, I'm not in this perfect place. I still desire to be in a partnership. I still want that. But it's it's not a need. It's not like a, a fix that I need, like that anxious feeling of I need to be fixed, like you did when you were drinking or using. It's like, I need this because I can't be okay without it. It's more like I truly do have a home in myself. And the reason for that is because it's like, this is a safe place to be now. Laura is a safe place to be. I trust myself. When I was very early in sobriety, there was this like, 
I don't even know if you could call it a poem. It's just more a line that I wrote. And it says, but there is this, I am awake and I am alive and I'm not afraid of myself anymore. And that was my baseline. It's like, at least I'm not afraid of myself anymore. And then you can, you can build on that, right? And then you start to build self-esteem through esteemable acts and you start to build dignity. And by esteemable acts, I mean, I didn't know how to be a functional person. I didn't know how to pay bills. I didn't know how to do laundry. I didn't know how to keep my word. My boundaries are all screwed up. So I would say yes when I meant no. And I was like, no, when I meant yes, just try to get you to like me and to people please and bend myself in different ways. And, and all of those things, all of that, that work adds up to being a place that internally I am proud to be in, that I am content to be in anyway. There's still loneliness, but it's not that loneliness. I think that totally makes sense. And I think it's a natural and normal human desire to be in a partnership. I think it's a, it's a desire that's part of being human. Right. Yeah, I had to learn that too. I always thought it was like this very embarrassing weak thing. Yeah, no. And and I think sometimes we're given this idea that like, well, if we're psychologically independent, then we just would never need that sort of thing. And it's not a need in the way you say, but it's a pretty strong human desire. But there's a very big difference between this is something I would like to have in my life and I want to have, and my life is not worth living without it, or my life is broken without it, or I am broken without it. Those are very different. Yeah. Because what it becomes is you essentially end up using people to fill something. You're not really in relationship, right? Yeah. You're you're using people to fulfill something in you. And, um, and that's not a relationship. I mean, we've all experienced those. No. Yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Right. My history of relationships was I'd go into a relationship thinking that's what I needed. I needed this person to fix me. And then when we'd finally be in the relationship and I wasn't fixed, I just go, you're the problem. You're the problem. You're (laughs) not like, like, why aren't you doing what I need you to do? I still believe like a relationship will fix me. You just are clearly the wrong one. And so I'm going to move on and find the right one. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, you and I are going to continue in the post-show conversation by talking about uh, this line from you. And you say, in my experience, the primary difference between those who recover and those who don't. So we're going to talk about what that is Mm -hmm. in the post-show conversation. Listeners, if you'd like access to that and mini episodes, ad-free episodes, and all kinds of other good stuff, you can become a member by going to oneufeed.net slash join. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a monthly donation to support the One You Feed podcast. When you join our membership community with this monthly pledge, you get lots of exclusive members-only benefits. It's our way of saying thank you for your support. Now, we are so grateful for the members of our community. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without their support, and we don't take a single dollar for granted. To learn more, Make a donation at any level and become a member of the One You Feed community. Go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.